I see today. I see a whole bunch of people that are sacrificing to be a part of a vision. And I believe as we build this, this building, that the gospel go out from this place to millions of people in the United States and around the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Today, we have an opportunity to sacrifice for the next generation. What we're doing is we're sacrificing that we're building their church so that their generation will be reached. You know, they talk about the next generation turning their back on God, not on our watch, not in this church. We're gonna sacrifice for them and they will preach messages and they will lead worship on this platform in this building and they will reach their generation. And so that's what today is about. Five, four, three, two, one. worthy of applause. What do you think? I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from an off-site campus or on the internet, wherever you happen to be. We're glad that you're along today, and that was a party that we had about a week and a half ago for a groundbreaking here, exciting. Uh, we're building a facility for the next generation. I appreciate you guys' faithfulness and giving uh, it's just fun to watch. And some of you say, well, when are we going to see walls come up? Patience. Okay, patience. Next couple of months, uh, we'll see some action going on there, but uh, it's exciting stuff. Listen, we're starting a new series today called The Summer of Love. I thought about, uh, you know, pulling out some old uh, outfits I used to wear back in 1967, uh, but uh, they wouldn't fit. Um, I remember... Uh, some lime green platform shoes and mix that with uh, orange plaid pants and a flowery shirt and it didn't look good back then either but it was what we wore. I asked several people in the earlier services, were you alive in 1967? Were you, were you, uh, you know, existing during the summer of love? And one guy said, I was born in 1968, does that count? I, I don't know, probably not, but... Uh, Summer of Love, 1967, uh, 100,000 young people called themselves hippies, gathered in San Francisco, social experiment that honestly probably impacted uh, our society. Um, we're going to reclaim the phrase this summer, and what we're doing is we're going to do a study of 1 John about love. And we're not going to do what we normally do, maybe when we do a book study is we'll go verse by verse. Uh, this one, we're going to just grab phrases and concepts that will uh, encompass uh, the, the concepts that 1 John has, but we'll just kind of pick some phrases in, in a, a broad brush. Now, today, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 John 4.8. In fact, it's kind of the overview for the entire series, and it's at the top of your outline sheet. Do you see it? Or if you have a Bible, you can follow along. 1 John 4.8. Let's read it out loud here and in the campuses. Can we do that? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
says, if you're going to understand God and know God, you got to know you got to love other people because if you don't, then you don't know God because it's a foundational principle at the very kind of bottom line in understanding God, you got to know that God is love. Does anybody uh, put pictures on Instagram? Anybody do that? A few of you? Yeah. Um, have you used filters? Do you use filters? I mean, some people who are kind of, you know, uh, purists in photography, they'll post pictures on Instagram, but they'll put no filter, which is kind of a subtle way of saying, hey, I'm really good, and I didn't need a filter on this, and if you were as good as me, your pictures could look like this. But uh, I use filters. In fact, sometimes Debbie and I and some of our friends will go out right at sunset and try to take sunset pictures and have competition. Who can take the best picture posted on Instagram and all that? And Debbie gets mad at me because she'll say, use the filter. Use lots of filters. That doesn't even look like what we saw. Okay? You have distorted reality. I'll just say, no, 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 no. I interpreted the scene and I'm an artist. That's what I do. So you didn't interpret anything. It doesn't even look like it did. And that's why people like your pictures and, and uh, we have intense fellowship. You know, have you ever wondered how accurate your image of God is? What if you took a picture, your picture of God, what if you posted on Instagram, and what if your filter just really was inaccurate? Now, some of our filters of God are, um, are because of our life experiences. You know, that's a filter. We, something happened, and, and so we go, well, God's like this. Some of it is uh, what others have taught us or opinions of others. We've read a book or maybe you, you know, went to Sunday school or sat under a preacher and there was this picture of God and that impact as a filter your imp- uh, of your image of God. Sometimes it's feelings. Well, oftentimes we lead with our feelings. This is how I feel about God. And so it is a filter on uh, the image of God. And some of them are pretty good interpretations, to be honest with you. But some of them are reality distortions. A couple of years ago, I was uh, riding an airplane, and I was going actually from Charleston to San Francisco, where Summer of Love in 67 was. And uh, weirdly enough, we were routed through Boston. I had no idea that Boston was between Charleston and San Francisco, but apparently, apparently so, and some of you have experienced that. Now, these days when you ride an airplane, don't expect to talk to the person next to you. They'll come in with headphones. they got their iPads. You don't even have to turn off your electronics at all now. You can do it, and so they don't talk much. But this particular flight, the guy next to me was kind of chatty, and it was great. He uh, was in the software business. In fact, he'd been a part of a couple of startups in the Boston area, and he was down here doing something software-wise. And so we began to talk a little bit, and I told him I was kind of a little bit geeky myself, you know, and told him that I worked for Hewlett-Packard Company before I got into my current line of business, which was a mistake. Because, as a lot of you know, I've said before, when I ride an airplane, a lot of times people will ask me what you do for a living, and I'll kind of fudge on it just a little bit, because it can be uncomfortable. Uh, I can say I'm a pastor and a person next to me immediately puts up a, you know, this kind of deal because they got issues, whatever. Or it can be three hours of free counseling, which is an issue for me. And 
so sometimes I'll, I won't answer the question or whatever, but I, I've got to tell the truth on the flights into and out of Charleston because always on an airplane, whenever I travel, there are sea coasters on the airplane, and you guys out me. Hey, Pastor, how are you doing? You know, and, that, and it's okay. It's good. It's good. And so, and so in this particular case, I said to this guy, I said, yeah, um, I'm a pastor. And he said, well, that's interesting. He said, you'd be interested to know that I, I, I don't believe in God. I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Why don't you tell me about the God you don't believe in? Maybe I don't believe in him either. And we had a great conversation from there to Boston. I'd like to say I led him to the Lord. I didn't. But I think I did kind of poke a hole in the God that he thought that he didn't believe in because his image of God was distorted. And you may have a distorted image of God. You know, some of our images of God is as a disturbed God. A disturbed God. It's a filter that you have on who God is. God is disturbed. He's angry. He's vengeful. You read about him in the Old Testament especially and how God would strike people dead. In fact, even in the New Testament, they were having an offering in the new church and the offering went bad and two people died. We've never had anybody die during an offering here, which is good. <laughs> but you go, man, God's angry. And you internalize it. And when you sin and you fail, anybody ever sin here at all? Sin? Okay, a few, okay. And when you sin, you feel like God's angry at me. Some of us feel like God's angry at us all of the time, and that's the filter that we have of God. And you know what? God is what? Love. But there is, honestly, an aspect of God's character that is angry, and it's called the wrath of God. It's the other side of the coin, and I'm grateful for it. If, if God wasn't angry when what I read this week the 20, 19 or 20 Yazidi girls in either Iraq or Syria were burned to death by ISIS because they refused to be sexual slaves. And if my God's not angry about that, I've got a problem with that. When I got up this morning and I saw that there was a terrorist attack apparently in Orlando and 20 people are, are dead and many are wounded and if God's not angry about that, I've got a problem with that. God is angry at things. You would be too. Now, let's put it this way. Let's say that you had a child, and you loved your child, and you protected your child, and brought him up in the way that you just did your best as a parent, and at some point, somebody got to your child and gave him drugs. Let's say they gave him heroin, okay? That's happened here in our community. Intensely addictive, and as a result... Uh, your child becomes addicted, has challenges getting through it. Um, it destroys potential, on and on and on. Would you be angry? Sure you would. Who would you be angry at? Whoever gave it to him. The dealer. The friends who encouraged it. Your child from time to time. You would be angry if you traced it to the cartels who peddle pain for money. You'd be angry. You'd have a right to be angry. God is angry. God created a world, put his kids in it, protected them, 
Gave them the freedom of choice. A lot of people ask, why do, you know, where is God when these crazy, crazy things happen? He's angry. He grieves just like you do. Uh, why doesn't he stop it? Well, he, he could, but he'd have to take away our right to choose. And in our right to choose is our ability to love, and love is the highest principle. And so we make good choices, we make bad choices. Some choose to love, some choose to hate. But God, uh, God made this wonderful world, and, and then sin was introduced. The drug came in. And his kids were led astray. Hate happened. Um, misfortune. And it crippled the potential of people. And the drug was called sin. And it hurt people. And it affected all of his kids. They became dealers in sin. And so in pursuit of justice, and by the way, if your child was polluted and corrupted, as we talked about earlier, you would want justice. You would want those that did it to pay. And in pursuit of justice, God created in the Old Testament a system of laws. These laws were not restrictive on anything good. They were an outline of how we were to live together. These laws tell us how we're to relate to one another, how we're to love one another, how we're to deal with the poor, how we're to do business, and how we relate to God. And it has a whole set of consequences for those who break the law because it was needed was needed. And so the law was instituted. The people didn't follow the law, and God created a penal system that separated hardened criminals from innocent people forever. It's called heaven. It's called hell. And it makes sense. You wouldn't want a hardened criminal who never repented of their sin to live next door to you forever you wouldn't want them in your neighborhood right now. And God created a system to deal with that. But here, here's the challenge. As with any prison system, there are people who commit crimes, some small crimes, some big crimes, who are truly sorry for their crime. I know people who are murderers, who are in prison, who have come to an understanding of what they did was wrong. They've repented before God. They've confessed and tried to do restitution as best they can to those that they hurt, but the truth is they are going to be in jail for the rest of their life. There's no way out. And so as, as a, um, as a, uh, a solution to that very problem where we have People like you and I, some of us, all of us are sinners. Some just got carried away in the pleasure of sin. Some are big-time dealers in sin. Some are members of cartels that profited from other people's pain. God sent Jesus Christ to take the penalty for sin for those who are truly sorry. The Bible says the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. His anger towards sin the eternal consequences of sin. That doesn't mean that if you sin today, there'll be no consequences. No, there's cause and effect for everything. But the eternal consequences of sin um, are taken. The penalty is paid in Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in what Jesus did 
You get a get-out-of-jail-free card, which is good forever. 1 John 1, verse 8 says this. If we claim to be without sin, anybody in here claim to be without sin at all? Let's read the rest of this before you raise your hand. We deceive ourselves. We're not self-aware at all. And the truth is not in us. All of us are sinners. So we have a problem. There is a penalty for sin. But it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In fact, I, I teach that you don't need to ask God to forgive you for your sin because that leaves a question of whether God will or God won't. The Bible says he does. He is faithful and just even when we're not faithful. So the question is not, will God forgive us? The question is, will we confess our sin? Because if we confess our sin, it says he is faithful and just. He will forgive us. And if you put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, the good news is, God is not angry with you. God is angry at sin. He's not angry at you. Your sin has been dealt with, past, present, and future, in Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you feel otherwise, when you feel like God's angry with you, you need to talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. Because yourself will deceive you. Your feelings will tell you this. There will be some kind of a filter that you'll put on God. And rather than listening to that filter, you need to talk to yourself and tell yourself that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. That you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. That God has done everything necessary for you to be a son or a daughter of God. That's the truth. And so if your God is angry all the time, that's not a God I believe in. I'm atheistic to your God. Let me give you another, let me give you another uh, kind of filter of God, and that's a disconnected God, a disconnected God. Some people believe in a God that's just too busy with other more important things to be concerned with than them. There are wars, for goodness sake. There's striving or starving kids. There's all the results of sin and man's inhumanity to man, and there's greed, and God has to deal with all of those things. Why would he be concerned about me and my issues? And that's the filter that we have of God so we feel distant from God. And it sounds reasonable, right? There are more important things than, you know, your hangnail or whatever it happens to be. Well, it sounds reasonable, but it's just not true. Because God tells us what he thinks about you. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 12 and verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Time out. How many of you bought a sparrow recently? <laughs> no. No, you, you don't. But go to your local pet store, take the cheapest pet, whatever it happens to be, and you need to understand that the most insignificant thing, the most insignificant thing, I think, are those little lizards that are all over South Carolina and they get in your house. Think of the most insignificant pet that's out there. And he says, not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of us make that easier on God. <laughs> Some of you, when God looks down on you, all he sees is hair. 
When he looks down on me, he sees his reflection. That's good. So here's what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And God hasn't forgotten a a single sparrow, he says. And so the next time you feel worthless and that God is too busy for you and that your problems are insignificant to him, you need to tell yourself another narrative because you're lying to yourself. You matter to God. You're important to God. God is not distant or disconnected from you. If that's the God you serve, I'm atheistic to that God. I don't believe in him, okay? It's a picture that you have. God's not disturbed. He's not disengaged. But the most dangerous image of God is this next one, and it's what I'm going to spend the rest of our time on, and that's a disappointed God, a disappointed God. Would you agree we all experience disappointment in life? Yeah, I found these beautiful posters. Look at this. I love this one. You got it? Here it is. It's a bad hair day. It says disappointment because that haircut looks so good in the magazine. You ever had one of those? Do it like this. You come out, oh, you know, whatever. Let's go to the next one. Uh, I love this one. This is, in the magazine, it looks like that. In real life, it looks like this. It says life, get used to disappointment. Isn't that fun? Okay, let's go to the next one. Oh, this one. Uh, Gettysburg, South Dakota, where the battle wasn't. (laughs) What a waste of gas. I like that one. I don't care whether you did or not. I love it. Okay, let's go to the next one. This one was so good. See the chicken in the camera, photographer? Disappointment was an understatement when Colin finally understood what his editor meant when he said, go out and photograph some cute chicks. <laughs> I, I think it deserves more laughter than that. Let's, let's go to the next. I love this one. Reincarnation disappointment. I said hippie. <laughs> Did you get that? That's a hippo reincarnation. Yeah, okay, good. All right. Yeah, we don't believe in reincarnation, but that was pretty funny anyway. Here's the problem. When we project our ability to get disappointed on God. I get disappointed, so God must be disappointed sometimes. In fact, I got an email this week. Somebody was thinking about something, and the bottom of the email, they said, do you think God is angry and disappointed with me? Well, we all know, or at least we do now, that if you confess that you're a sinner and you trust Christ, that he died for your sin, God's not angry with you. He's not angry with your sin. He's dealt with it in Jesus Christ. But what about disappointment? What about that nagging suspicion that he's at least a little disappointed with how I've turned out? With the gifts that he's given me and with how I've used them and I really don't look forward to that day of standing before him. I'm not sure he's going to say, well done. He's going to say, you know, you should have done a little better. With I gave you a little bit more. Or maybe it's the decisions that I've made. Maybe even it's a decision from this past week or might have been last night. And surely God is disappointed with me. Well, why why do I say that this is the most dangerous distortion of God? Because someone who has a constant feeling of God's disappointment sees themselves through a filter of shoulds, should'ves, shouldn't have, could'ves, would'ves. Life never seems to add up. They never know where the good enough line is. How much do I have to do? What's the line 
to experience God's pleasure. They never really experience the love of God because it's hard to approach somebody who's disappointed in you. Would you agree with that? And so two responses that I see to feeling like God is disappointed in you. Some people just try harder and they try harder and they try harder. They have no idea where the good enough line is, but they're going to get there. And so they, they, they do and they do and they do and they do and they try and I tell you what, there are people who are very successful. I know people who are what we would call successful in ministry and maybe we need to redefine the word success. But they re- achieve a lot of results but it's driven by this suspicion that they don't do enough. That God's disappointed in them. Maybe it's a mother or a father, humanly, that they sense disappointment. They project that filter on God, and so they just do, do, do. They even acquire. Some people don't know when to quit acquiring because there's this whole thing of it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. And the flip side of that coin is people who just give up and medicate. They also don't know where the finish line is, but they know they can't get there, and they failed a number of times, and so they just give up and medicate. Maybe medication is alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's sex, maybe it's pornography. But they just give up. Neither one is good. So let me ask you a question just in kind of understanding this a little bit. Why are you the way that you are? If I was to ask you today, right now, why are you the way that you are? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. Well, those who study that say that there are basically three kind of things that come together to make you who you are. The first one is genetics and multi-generational predisposition. How of you know I didn't make that up? <laughs> genetics and predispositional, um, uh, multi-generational, whatever. Here's what it means. <laughs> it, it means that you have a, you have a history. That there are people, you're just like your dad, just like your mom, or that you have some tendencies that flow in our family. There are generational predispositions. Some people, you know, just predisposition towards something, and it's generational, it's in their genes. That's one of the things that make you the way that you are. A second one is um, early life imprints. Early life imprints. Just like the first one, you don't have much to do with this when it happens to you. For instance, let's say that mama or daddy is trying to teach little Johnny not to touch a hot stove. You can lecture little Johnny. You can show him videos. When is he going to get it? When he has a significant life experience. He touches. Oh, wow, I'm not going to do that again. It's an imprint. That's a good imprint. Now, let's suppose that it's a negative imprint. Let's suppose that little Johnny loves daddy and he's waiting for daddy and he wants daddy to come home and he hears daddy's car and the door opens and here comes daddy and he's waiting and daddy brushes by him because he's got something else on his mind. That happens once, not a big deal. If it happens continuously, there's this imprint on Johnny that says Johnny isn't important. Johnny isn't important to daddy and it impacts his life. It's one of the reasons he's the way that he is. Or it could be something like this, little, little, uh, little Debbie or Mary, she, she, uh, she doesn't look exactly like the image that is kind of out there that she should look like. Maybe she's too short or too tall or too thin or too heavy. And maybe at some point in school, somebody says something about it, 
makes a joke of it in a public setting, and maybe she acts like it doesn't hurt, but it does hurt. It marks her, and the rest of her life, she's dealing with issues, whether reality or not reality. That could have been yesterday's reality, but she still deals with it today, or he does. Imprints, life imprints from life experiences. That's part of what makes you who you are. The third thing is your choices. And we put a whole lot on this third one when only it's a one-third of the piece, and it might not even be one-third. It might be just a smaller piece. It is a part of it, but the first two you had very little to do with. So why are you the way that you are? You would have a hard time answering that. Why do you do the things that you do? You'd probably have a hard time answering that, rightfully so. Guess what? Is God disappointed in you? How can you, how, let, let me, let me just, let me, Knock that just a little bit. Let me give you a definition of disappointment. Disappointment dictionary says the feeling of sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. What does that mean? That means that I'm disappointed because you didn't fulfill my expectation of you. That would be one of those. How could God be disappointed in you? Is God omniscient? What does that mean? He knows everything. I've said before, it's real hard to surprise an omniscient God. Would you agree with that? God's never had a time where he woke up and said, oh, I didn't see that coming. Number one, he never woke up. He's always awake, and he saw it coming. He knows everything. And if he knows everything, how can he be disappointed? How can his hopes be shattered if he's hoping in something that he already knows? Does that make sense a little bit? I mean, it's hard to get your mind around, and there are all kinds of aspects to it, but let me apply it like this. God knows more than you do how those three things interact to make you the way that you are. He knows more than you do why you do the things that you do. And I think rather than be disappointed, the Bible says God is for you. He's not against you. He's your biggest cheerleader. He's going, I know you have these life imprints, and I know you deal with and struggle with these particular things that are going on inside of you, and it's multi-generational, and there's this the, kind of the genes that you have and maybe what you were given, and I know some of your choices haven't been the best, and I know it all came together, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you to get through this. I'm going to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the life of Jesus living within you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and rather than laugh at you when you're down or be disappointed in you when you don't fulfill your own expectations, I'm going to be the first one there cheering you on. Does that make sense? And if you serve a God who is disappointed and you project human disappointment onto God, you miss the point completely. In fact, 1 John 1 and verse 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. There's not a dark side to God. He's all light. He's all love. His wrath has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he's for you. And if you have a filter of a God who's disappointed in you, I'm agnostic, maybe atheistic to your God because that's not the God I serve. Let me tell you what God is like. In fact, rather than me telling you, flip your outline sheet over, I've got two minutes and 54 seconds to get through the whole back part, but we'll do it 
maybe not quite in that amount of time, but a reasonable amount of time, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a story, and in the story, you're going to see what God is like, three things, because it's always three. <laughs> and Jesus tells the story. He knows God better than you do, because he's the son of God. He was with God. He became man, and now he's with God again, and he tells us what God is like. And it's a story in Luke chapter 15, and uh, look at the very first verses of it. It says, now the tax collector and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I like to feel this. I like to feel stories. I got to get into them. So he's in a room, and there's these tax collectors. There's sinners. There's world-class sinners in the room. There's tax collectors. There's prostitutes. There's a few Clemson fans. There's the New England. <laughs> and they're all in the room. And, they, and, 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 and they're up close. They're in the front rows. Why are they in the front rows? They're leaning in. Why? Because they're listening for hope. And Jesus has given them hope. Everybody else writes them off. Jesus doesn't. He gives them hope. They're in the front room and they're leaning in. And then in the back of the room, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And they're leaning against the back wall. They're the religious people. Is he really saying the stuff that he is? So you got people leaning in, people leaning back. Who does Jesus love? All of them. Because they're all sinners. One of them doesn't think they are, but they are. One group knows they're sinners, the other one doesn't, but they are. Jesus loves them all. How can I reach them? How about I tell them a story? And so he tells three stories, as a matter of fact. He tells a story about a lost coin and a lost sheep, and then he tells a story about a lost son. And we know that story, but I want to read it because I want you to see what God is like. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. When does that normally happen? When he dies. So basically he's saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, squandered his wealth on wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, he began to be in need. So he went, hired himself out to a citizen of that country who, happened, who sent him to feed his pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with even what the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father, say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The father is a picture of God. The son has a distorted picture of who God is. Just make me a servant. What is God really like? Look at the next verse. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with anger. Oh, he was actually not. He was filled with compassion because that's who God is. God is compassionate. Filled with compassion. And he ran and he threw his arms around his son and he kissed him. This father isn't disturbed. He's not angry. He's not vengeful. He's compassionate. Look at the next verse. He says, 
The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. How, how, would, a, how, would, a, how would a disappointed father handle that? Boy, you finally got that right. You wanted me dead. You took your part of the inheritance. That was hard-earned money, son. You don't even know the value of money, and you went and you squandered it. Let me tell you something. You're darn right you're not going to be my son. You're going to be a servant, but not just any servant. You're going to be at the bottom of the totem pole. Mom and I are glad you're home. We were worried about you. But you're going to work your way up. And when you can prove yourself that you know how to handle money, you know how to handle life, then maybe someday you'll be worthy of me calling you a son. That's what a disappointed father would say. That's not what God said. Because this is a picture of God. What does he say? But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger. My son is, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, he's found, and so they had a party. So you put your story in here. When you blow it in big ways and in small ways, God's not disappointed. He knows better than you the factors that brought you to this point. He wants better for you. But he knows the factors that brought you to this point more than you do. He is compassionate and he is loving. Okay? Here's the second thing God is. God is engaged. God is not disconnected. He has been on a passionate pursuit of you. Look at the next verse. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he, sur- he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, was, uh, he has him back and safe and sound, and so the other brother became angry, and he refused to go in. What does a disappointed father do? What does a disconnected father do? Let him keep his angry attitude out in the field. We're having a party here. Have you ever had a party? You had somebody with a bad attitude come in and pollute the whole party? Anybody? You ever been that person? Don't be that person. Just leave him out there. He'll get it someday. It's not what he does. Look what he does. Look what he does. It says, so his father went out and he pleaded with him. He pleaded with him to come in. C.S. Lewis calls God the relentless hound of heaven. I love that. The relentless hound of heaven. Why are you here today? I'm asking tough questions. Why do you do what you do? I told you. Why are you here today? You say, well, you know, I come all the time. Good. Glad you're here. Or we're vacationing right now in Charleston, number one destination city in America and the world this year. And we looked up on the internet. We found Seacoast sound like a pleasant place to be, and so we're here. I'm glad you're here. Some of you, I had a friend that invited me, haven't been going to church much, came. That's why I'm here. I'm glad you're here. Could there be something deeper going on, though, here? Could not the God of the universe have orchestrated circumstances so that you would be here today so that he could explain to you who he is, that you'd have a bigger picture of him and that you could love him more and he could love you? Is that possible? Those of you who've come to know Christ, do you remember when you first came to know Christ, you thought my search is over when actually you look back and you say, it was his search. 
I mean, I look back and I look at things in my life and how he orchestrated relationships and circumstances so that I could come to know him. That's why C.S. Lewis calls him the relentless hound of heaven. See, in this story, God pursued both brothers, the flagrant sinner, the one who made the poor choices, checked out and medicated, and the self-righteous person who they thought had it all together, the guy who couldn't do enough. One had done too much bad, the other couldn't do enough good. But both had warped pictures of who the Father was. But there's one more, one more picture. And that's God is a generous God. Look at this. He says to the older son, my son, you're always with me. And everything that I have is yours. See, we have this picture of scarcity and he says, no, 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 no. The son thought, if you, if you spend it all on him, there won't be enough for me. And the father says, no, there's enough for everybody. What do you need? I'll give it to you. You need forgiveness. You need money. You need provision. What do you need? It's all yours. Generous God. So what is God not like? He's not disturbed. He's not disengaged. He's not disappointed. What is he like? He is compassionate. He is passionately pursuing you every day of your life. He is generous. One more question. Actually, I got a couple more, but this is the next one. What should we call this story? What is this story called? This isn't rocket science. What's this story called? Prodigal son, is that a good name for it? Uh, it doesn't encompass everything. Some people think it should be called the prodigal father because it's more about the father than it is the son. And other people say, well, that leaves out the two sons. Maybe it should be the story of two sons. I would suggest another name. How about the story of three brothers? Say three, I just saw two. Well, there's the prodigal son, he's a brother. There's the older brother who wouldn't come in, he's a brother. And there's the brother that told the story, Jesus. And that brother knows the father more than anybody. In fact, that brother left the father to come to earth and to correct the errors in the way that we see God and to present you with a living image of who God really is. Because God is Love. Do you remember that first verse? God is love. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so the most important question of the day is this. Have you received his love? Have you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the pictures in your word, the accurate pictures of who you are. Would you you replace our pictures with your pictures? Would you replace our filters with the filters of who you are? You're beautiful in everything that you do. You're righteous in all of your ways. Your timing is always right. And you love us. And you call us your kids. And so, God, we take just a minute to worship you in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.